0: It's hard to imagine life these days without the convenience and omnipresence of technology. Smartphones tightly gripped in our hands, our work condensed into our laptops, and who hasn't uttered the words, What did we even do before the internet? But actually, for a significant part of the population, they stand on the other side of what is called the digital divide. At its most basic, it's the difference between the haves and have-nots – those who have ready access to information and communications technology and those who don't. The digital divide widens the most when it comes to those with disabilities, rural households and low-income households. And the impact is much deeper than just being able to look something up on Google. Digital technology is crucial for access to education, healthcare and work in the 21st century. My guest this episode believes technology should be accessible to all, and she's been working tirelessly for years to ensure everyone across society can access what many now deem to be life necessities. We talk about her work upskilling teachers in digital technologies, the importance of encouraging more digital fluency in children, and why diversity and inclusion in tech is so important to her. And of course, we take a look at her relationship with her cultural identity and what role learning Te Reo Maori has had in that journey. Please enjoy this conversation with the formidable Vivian Chandra. Vivian, you're all about like diversity in tech and making tech more accessible. Um, And I don't think that we necessarily need to like talk about why diversity is important, but like, (laughs) (laughs) why is this mission so important to you?
1: I guess one of the um, things that when I first started looking into this um, I was as guilty as anyone else with thinking about diversity like I think I heard the phrase diversity of thought a long time ago and then I was like that seems legit like you know why would I just be looking at superficial things like race and gender and I don't know even maybe sexuality and then kind of go oh but you know, there's no reason to say that, you know, two straight, <laughs> cis white people can think completely differently. And I guess in the time that I've sort of been thinking about this a lot more, um, it, like there really is something to be said about that kind of experience of living in a, in a different body or a different different point of view that really changes how you do think. I guess that's kind of something that um, I've really been interested in recently is breaking through those stereotypes and not wanting to be or be stereotypically anything, but then also being really aware that am I only doing that in a way that really feeds into like patriarchal ideas
0: or et cetera. <laughs> I don't know if
1: that even answered your question, sorry. Yeah, no, totally.
0: <laughs> um, so, so how do you think those – patriarchal ideas or other aspects manifest themselves in technology currently
1: yeah I mean I guess um oh was it yesterday I think I saw something um someone had posted about exactly this it was just like all of this kind of societal stuff is made up it's it's all been made up by somebody. And what a lot of people don't actually realize is that, that these, these hard truths that they see of themselves is been made up by somebody. And the scary thing is it's because people don't realize that they don't realize who made it up. And so, and that like really manifests itself in tech so drastically Um, who made the tech, and why they think that that tech is what they consider normal with all the quote marks you can use um, is really, really scary. Because it's, you know, like right down to you've got like one of the examples we use in, in the mahi that I do is Sophia. She, she's a robot. And if you listen to her makers, they, can, they say she is a beautiful woman and then when you look at her, she is a white woman, she's thin, she's, I guess, again, with quote marks, the right proportions, whatever they might be, but they're, you know, and they're, in terms of her, a patriarchal idea of what a beautiful woman is, and then when you're considering that she's a robot that's been created for a certain reason, is there a need for her to look like a beautiful white woman, or, you know, again, whatever you might consider the word beautiful to mean in that context. And yeah, and then right down to people dying more, like um, I think I can't remember the stats, so I'm not going to say it, but a vast majority more African-Americans are killed by uh, self-driving cars than uh, I guess they call themselves European-Americans or white-Americans. And it's just like, why? And um, whenever I use that example to the people that I talk to. I'm like, it's not because the people that were making the self-driving cars are racist as such. They don't go around saying things like they don't like black people. (laughs) It's because the test data they use only had white people in it. And so then the test data doesn't even recognize a person that is not what's in the test data as being human and that's what's really scary yeah
0: Yeah. it reminds me um are you across those stories that were fairly recent um about the university scoring system about how they used algorithms and because of covid (laughs) um, they couldn't actually test students and so they used an algorithm to predict who would get into university
1: yeah um, and, and it was, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't remember the details of that, but I've heard of countless examples of that, you know, from across the world. And a lot of that kind of stuff doesn't take into account, I guess, the background or, you know, the circumstance. And and when it's something like university entrance, this is something that's really uh, close and personal to me because people always say stuff like, oh, if you have a quota, it means that the people that have been let in under that quota are not as smart as these other people that got in on their own merit. And that it's it's called a meritocracy, isn't it? Like this idea of um, getting in on your own merit when you're not looking at what, you know, how you started. <laughs> so Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: yeah, I feel like the people who say that are saying that not acknowledging that not everyone starts from the same starting line
1: in life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, There's a great activity we do with children sometimes where we say, okay, here's a bunch of chocolate fish. Um, Every kid that throws this ball or this bunch of rubbish or whatever it is into this bin gets a chocolate fish. But randomly, you three get to stand right next to the bin and then you four get to stand way back here and (laughs) everyone else has to stand somewhere in between. And, you know, the four at the back are like, well, that's completely unfair. I have to throw my ball of paper, you know, six feet. And then the, the person at the front just has to like drop it into the bin. And we're like, yeah, well, that's that's life, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some people get born right next to the goal and other people um, get yeah, shoved exactly. all the way back.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, so in your work so far, which you've been doing for a uh, while wow now, right? <laughs> um, what have been some of the biggest challenges that you've faced in trying to make tech more diverse?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I guess one of the things that um, we look at with an uh, organisation I work with called Ally Skills, out at Oa. so there we take diversity and inclusion training into corporates directly. And so when you're talking to a certain type of person that has really most of the people we talk to, you know, you would consider they've made it in life. They're working a fairly good job in um, a corporate that can afford, to be frank, the workshop fees <laughs> and um, obviously also a corporate that cares enough about this kind of stuff to bring that kind of workshop in. You're, again, we're talking about different starting lines, right? And so um, one of the challenges has been for people to understand what that word privilege means and that it doesn't mean that you yourself personally are being given stuff that other people have not been given and that it's a societal issue and that it's different depending on which section of society, which country you live in and, you know, what your circumstances are in relation to that. So really unpacking what privilege means is a big one and yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah, sorry I just wanted to butt in because I have done I have done your workshop through (laughs) my work and it was uh so one of the exercises we did was we had a whole list of examples of things that we may or may not have had or experienced in life yeah uh which pointed to different levels of privilege yes and one of the ones I remember thinking oh shit like of course this is privilege was when it was something about like did you ever have to work while you studied and like for a lot of us it's like well yeah of course we worked part-time while we studied but that's not really what the question meant because no. so many people have to actually work work like yes. it's not just something they choose to do it's something they have to do in order to yeah. support themselves and their families yes
1: yeah. and stuff like that is being spoken off a lot more I just saw um there's a massive change.org petition at the moment for social workers and I think it's American it's, it's aimed at the American market but there to be qualified as a social worker, you have to have a certain number of hours, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, like on the job hours. But the number that the social workers' union or whatever, whoever does the regulation there, it like vast outnumbers, for example, equivalent other industries like teaching and stuff. And then they point out that the people more likely to want to qualify as a social worker are people that we actually kind of desperately want in this role. So they're the people that already have to work full time already have children and now you're expecting to work these vast number of hours, sometimes for free, (laughs) um, to to qualify. And you see that time and time again, um, unpaid internships where people are like, Oh, it's this like huge opportunity that you get to work in this fancy ass company for free. (laughs) And you're like, Yeah, I can't afford that. I have to work to live.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I have so many opinions about unpaid internships. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, why, um, or rather, how did you become so interested in this diversity and inclusion aspect? (laughs) <laughs>
1: uh look at me <laughs> well
0: we won't have video yeah, so <laughs> yeah
1: that's true Just google me yeah. um listeners <laughs> um yeah so uh yeah the, I mean it isn't it isn't a joke so I am of Asian descent I was born in Malaysia um and I came to New Zealand when I was eight so you could like I think we talked about this in some of the pre-talks. It's uh, I think they call that a 1.5 immigrant. So you're not born here. Your parents aren't born here, but you're basically from here. And so experience little tiny racist incidences from when I was a child. Got yelled at in the street in Mount Albert, which was interesting. I was all of 12, maybe, 12 or 13. Um, I don't, so you swore before. Is it okay to... to to say oh, yeah. three words on this podcast, yeah, yes. um yeah so interesting as I uh, hadn't really had much I mean I guess up till then I hadn't been out on my own either um so may have been shielded from it in the past but uh walking down the street and someone yelled across the street I vaguely remember her as being a middle-aged uh, Pākehā woman um, go back to where you came from, mm. and um, as a budding twelve, thirteen-year-old, uh, I, I, I say this to myself now as an adult that um, was really sensitive about how my body was going through puberty. I apparently yelled back at her, "Well, you have no tits." Oh, <laughs> you can read all of that internalized patriarchy and sexism you want into that yes. <laughs> I don't know why today to this day I don't think I've ever yelled it out to anyone ever again um but I was angry and I was scared right I saw a sore child um and it's ridiculous because fast forward to I think 20 2018 I was in Christchurch airport and um on my way home from a work trip and yeah, some drunk guy next to me starts asking, Oh, where are you from? Where are you really from? And blah, blah. And by then I'd, I I knew enough Te Reo Māori to uh, completely answer him in Te Reo Māori (laughs) just to be, just to be a little bit of a smart ass. Um, uh, it, he didn't really get it because he was drunk. So he wandered away. Uh, but I did strike up a conversation with the young Maori guy that was sitting next to me. <laughs> and so that they ended up as a good story in the end. But um, yeah, so these kind of little incidences joined themselves together in my head, I guess, to kind of make me want to do something about it. Um, in the last four or five years, my main mahi has been with an organisation called the Pam Freakers and Charitable Trust. We work in um, what the census calls high deprivation areas um, to look at that digital divide. And so looking again at that tech, but looking at how tech can help with socioeconomic issues education issues and things like that so one of my main role or my main role is to go into schools and train teachers school teachers in looking at digital technologies and how to incorporate that into whatever they already teach so if you're an English teacher how do you teach literacy skills using digital technologies
0: that's amazing and
1: what's yeah what's really interesting with that is that it's um Doing that has really shown a lot of teachers, like some really, really amazing Kayako out there, teachers out there that have been doing this for 20, 30 years and going, I don't need to teach tech. You know, I teach writing. (laughs) I teach these little kids how to form letters. And, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but if you teach them their phonics through this app, then you're also teaching them how to use an app. And then, you know, and, and with some of our kids, they don't have tablets and things coming out of everywhere at home. And so this might be the one opportunity they get to play on an iPad, and that doesn't seem like much to me, you, and probably to most of your listeners. But to a to a seven year old that um, doesn't have any of this kind of stuff at home, and really their entire house shares the one prepaid mobile from the warehouse, it's a massive deal. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I wanted to dig in a little bit to that digital divide. So, is it when you say digital divide, is that more than just the have and have nots? It starts there. Um, please don't ask me about
1: statistics. I'm terrible at statistics. Uh, This is me breaking out of my stereotypes. Bad at (laughs) (laughs) math. And I can't cook. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, the statistics though are really stark and I should have looked them up before this to be fair, but it is the have and have nots. I do know one number. It's something like, Two or 300,000 children during lockdown had no access to a device or and or an internet connection. It was something like that. And that's in Aotearoa. You know, that's in 5 million people, if you consider how many a million of that could be children. You know, it's, it's a ridiculously large number for such a small country. And that is just kids that don't have access to a device or an internet connection if they had a device to do something like we're in lockdown, you need schoolwork you need to do your schoolwork online, right? And then uh, you kind of, you know, you flip a a coin, and you talk to um, one of my friends who's a teacher at a private school. And they were like, oh, lockdown's great. Uh, I was at home, I got to you know, only dress from the waist up. <laughs> All my kids, were. I, I promise you listeners, I have clothes on right now. Um, but yeah, it was just, you know, and she was like, yeah, no, it's great. Um, My kids, you know, were in and out of the meets that we we're doing for them or whatever, whatever, you know, insert Zoom meets, whatever. They already knew how to use them. In fact, teacher X doesn't like Zoom. So they moved on to meets and the kids were like, Okay, they were fine. And yeah, and so it's not the have or have nots. I like to think about as like the, the, the uh, there's no equivalent verb, but like the people that know and the people that don't know. <laughs> and, and the people that don't know sometimes don't know what they don't know. Yeah, right. And that's what's really scary.
0: Yeah, and I guess starting from such a young age, being on one side of that divide, it, it will sort of feed into their later lives, right? As they go through school and or whatever yeah. else they choose to do and into their workplace. Yeah. right. Um,
1: and I guess that's the other part of my background that's really cemented this. My mother works at a supermarket, has done all of her life. Well, since she got here, I don't know what she did before. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that's a minimum wage job. And my dad had like some kind of middle income job as well. And it was just Together, they had to, you know, work all the time. So kids, would, we were taken care of by my maternal grandmother, who still lives with her now, and um, which is a really common um, immigrant experience. And having all of that, but then I could see that she would save up for what she considered important. And so I, it was 1998, maybe earlier, no, 96, I think. And she paid, I think it was about $9,000 to – no Leemings or one of those people for a computer, you know, one of those giant things that sits in the corner of your lounge. And it was amazing. Like um, I had about the same time, one of my math teachers at our school, because back then, you know. 20 years before the digital technologies curriculum, um, Matt's teacher was like, oh, I've got all these old computers. I'm going to put them into this little basement room and we're going to have like a little computer club. So at the same time, I did that. And me and one of my friends joined a programming competition hosted by Unitech. And it was a terrible disaster. We were the only two girls there because I went to girls' school, so my friend was a girl. And only two girls there. Every other team was boys. And all of them seemed to know how to do the the programming competition was meant to be fair because it was a completely made up language that was only taught to you on the day. And yet we went there having learned exactly what the others learned, but they had done three or four other programming languages and we had not. And so those kinds of algorithmic thinking skills, which I know now as an IT professional, is a lot more important than you think. And again, it's that starting line, right? The, The Unitech organizers were being fair. They were like, we're going to teach everyone this completely brand new language, but no one makes it up completely from scratch, right? It, it, it's fed in by all this other stuff. And so, yeah, so we completely, I don't think we even finished the second. We have a certificate of participation or something, right? Um, but that really, that cemented in me the need for me to understand this and not be left behind, whereas I guess that's the kind of experience for a lot of people that would now cause them to be um, to be discouraged, And to show them that this is not for them, that the reason that I failed then was because we were the only girls in the room. And I mean, my friend who is still my friend to this day, she is now head of the Pacifica Pharmacists Association. You know, so it's not tech, but it kind of is as well. And it's just for us, that was what really cemented to us that we needed to try harder to fit in into a world that wasn't made for us. But that's one of why I do what I do is to try and make the world more diverse so that no one has to be, it, I don't fit in this world.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah that's such an awesome goal. Mm. Do you feel like teaching programming or computer skills or whatever they call it these days, <laughs> um, do you think it's improved a lot? Because I remember when I was at school, like that subject was literally sitting at a computer learning how to write on a word. Document. How to type. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. how to type.
1: Yeah, definitely yeah has it improved um yes and no so um digital technologies which is what I me and my facilitators train in is quite different from what we consider what you've just said which is digital fluency Digital fluency is how you use Word. How do you save a file? What even is a file? Um, A little bit of that is digital technologies, but digital technologies is creating using technology. So it's learning how to code. It's learning robotics. It's even playing Minecraft and um, using the coding tools in Minecraft to to build things within Minecraft because all of those skills are the ones that are transferable to actual jobs, whether they're in tech or not. The problem is, and we go back to that digital divide, to be ready for the digital technology curriculum, you need to have the digital fluency. And a lot of the issues is that if I walk into a private school or a high decile school, so we're not talk- meant to talk about deciles anymore, that was abolished, but everyone knows what I mean when I say that, especially in Aotearoa, yeah. so eh. <laughs> um, walk into a high decile school, they do have that digital fluency already, right? Um, when your child, because you're a middle income uh, you know, person from Aotearoa, you can afford to buy your board four-year-old a tablet. And, the, and your six-year-old hit their second tablet. <laughs> so by the time they're in school, they already know how to YouTube and all of that kind of stuff. And they might even know how to open up a Google Doc or a Word doc and type and do stuff. And so a, a teacher of a six, seven-year-old in one of those schools doesn't have to start there. And they don't have to start there with most of their kids. They might have to start there with two or three kids. That's fair. Um, and so then it means they can jump straight into how do we use Play-Doh to teach electronics or any of the other fun activities that we do that then shows, um, you know, things like computational thinking. Um, whereas you've got schools at the other end of the spectrum starting there, you know, going, this is the internet. <laughs> this is this is a keyboard. This is a mouse. Um and so they're gonna, you know, they're starting off a few years behind. Yeah.
0: How do you use Play-Doh? <laughs> <to teach? laughs>
1: um, it's called Squishy Circuits. You can Google it. It's really, really fun. Um, it's an art project, so you can make like I make one where it's a, a frog where the mount the little things go across the. Um, the mouth of the frog and then the eyes light up so that one's really cute um using like yeah it's super fun <laughs> I one
0: for myself yeah
1: you could totally they're like about 40 dollars <laughs> on trade me so go for gold um yeah we do that as a way to teach little kids what a basic electronic circuit is um and because they're already most of them almost every single kid I ever talked to knows what play-doh is (laughs) you don't have to start there and then basically you're going from there to okay don't touch this bit don't put this bit in your mouth (laughs) because I yeah I'm literally teaching this to five six-year-olds um and then yeah and then from there you can also teach fun things like electricity from the wall plug is like a fireman's hose electricity from this battery is like a hose in your garden you will not be hurt by the hose in your garden but the hose in the fireman you know you're
0: going to be shot across the room and die so <laughs> i yeah. feel like some <laughs> adults need that lesson <laughs> yeah yeah
1: uh i often get that um whenever we used to do public events we'd do some stuff and then if their parents came along i ran the best um, it was called a mother and daughter's evening uh afternoon at I want to say library or art gallery or one of those places, museum maybe, and um, all of the mothers that came along, like some of them were shoving their, their daughters aside.
0: Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically,
1: they were like, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Um, I have a really fun activity called Zombie Bots, which is um, it's creating a, um, a distraction device if, if we've had a zombie apocalypse and it is just a little like switch with a um, light on it. Um, but, you know, I can like really lay and think with the narrative there and um, yeah. And again, the adults really get into it and the kids are like, oh, this is so silly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would be so into that. Yeah. I often imagine what I would need to do in a zombie apocalypse.
1: <laughs> so do I. And I think um, overly so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Um. So, you know how there's a lot of rhetoric at the moment or over the past few years, especially with how ubiquitous technology is for a lot of people, about concerns around letting young children use technology, um, how that'll that will affect them as they grow, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, the problem there is this misunderstanding in general in the general public about the difference between active technology use and passive technology use. Um, or active versus passive screen time. Passive is, um, actually, unfortunately, what a lot of adults like to do too. <laughs> uh, that mindless scrolling through Instagram, um, clicking on one YouTube video and then watching three hours of it, um, that kind of stuff. So it's passive. It's, it's entertainment. It's, um, fine if that is what you're choosing to do with your time. What is worrying is that there are people that, um, sometimes need to do that as a way to entertain their children, because again, they have a whole bunch of other things that they have to do, um, or that they want to, because it's so much easier to do that than um, something else. And I speak as a parent of now a 14-year-old and 10-year-old, totally, absolutely, 150% guilty of this. It's like, they're in your face all day if you especially if you're with them for a long significant point of time. And so then you're like, you know what? Just go watch YouTube for an hour. <laughs> um and then an hour becomes two. And then suddenly it's like, huh, they've been there for a while. Where have they gone? And, you know, and um yeah, so that's the passive. Um, what we like to draw that distinction with is the active technology use, and that's um, using your technology to create even in a small version like even on a on a um uh like a tablet um so one one example that I had for this which is really cool was um I had my at the time so my 10 year old now he was about maybe six at the time and we were in Fiji um and Uh, where we were at one of um, his dad's relatives' houses, there was no internet connection. And so the only thing he could do on his tablet while the adults were talking was stuff that was already pre-downloaded to the tablet and didn't need an internet connection. And as you well know, most of those things don't work. And so one of the things that did work is an app called Scratch Junior that's been put out by MIT, the one in the States, not the one in Otara. There's nothing wrong with the one in Otara they just didn't put this out. <laughs> um so Scratch Jr and it's a way to teach computational thinking to small children that can't read yet. At 6 he can read but it was just it was easier for him to like drag the little characters and stuff across the screen instead of like using the full version of Scratch with all the reading and you know at 6 it's like reading is iffy um so he's doing it and basically how it's set up it's like it's almost like a a cartoon or a um, like a animation um and he was trying to get a character to throw a basketball into a hoop now if you imagine that the picture of the basketball hoop is like you were taking the photo down the court so the basketball hoop is at the back but the way that scratch junior works is that it's a left to right Narrative, right? So, like, um, one of the lessons I teach—that's really easy—as a first lesson is how do you pick up rubbish? And so the little character moves across the screen towards the rubbish bin that's on the right, starting at the left, right? That makes sense, and that's because it's easier for, for a child to program it that way. And so he brings this tablet to me when I'm trying to, you know, be entertained by my my husband's family who I've never met before, and he's like, "How do I make the the woman throw the basketball into the back of the screen?" And I'm like, "You can't do that." sweetie this is a left to right game we know this we've we've talked about this before and he was like oh okay so he goes away and then he comes back and he's like I did it (laughs) and I was like what do you mean you did it and he's like look and then he pressed play and indeed the basketball went into the screen so what he worked out was you could shrink the basketball as it goes up the screen And so as you shrink it, what does it look like to your human eye? It looks like it's going away from you. Right. And I was literally mind blown. I was like, (laughs) whoa. (laughs) You took a 2D program and you made it 3D just by thinking about perspective. I'm like, you're what, I think seven actually, to be fair. Like, I mean, obviously he had to understand perspective to get that far but once he understood perspective it was the creativity of not being like I did I did what you every parent says you shouldn't do like you can't do that you know (laughs) it's impossible (laughs) and so that's what I love about tech is that often in a lot of things that we do nothing is impossible but you are very restricted by society and what you what you're expected to be able to do at depending on what you look like or who you are And that's that's really sad because no one is telling these kids that they can do whatever they want.
0: So, do do you see a lot of the work that you're doing actually creating that change? Like, do you see that change happening? I hope so (laughs) um
1: I mean I like every now and then print like a post about some very specific anecdote where something like that has happened and in some cases not the biggest of deals so um for example a few years ago I was asked to be a mentor on the girl girl boss edge or whatever the um program is and I um you know, I was free. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And I like literally did two Zoom calls with two young girls. And they were, I think at the time, year 12 or year 13 at high school. And I just talked to them like I'm doing to you now. And um, I completely forgot about it, to be fair. And just uh, about a month ago, I was like, you know what, I should Check out where they're at. I had a Gmail for them, so they could technically still have it. Emailed them and yeah, both of them came back to me straight away, said, Oh yeah, in my second year at uni now. Um, super excited. And one of them was like, Yeah, I've gone into tech. I was actually kind of umming and ironing, I mean, obviously not that much because you know they signed up for the girl boss head program, <laughs> but like enough for her to go, yeah, actually talking to you showed me that it's it, it, it's that what I said earlier, right? Um I think it's not a world that I can be in. And I was really frank with these girls. I was like, you know, you are going to go into industries that are still predominantly men. And, you know, you're going to be the lead engineer on some project and someone's going to ask you to make coffee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's still going to happen. And it happens to me. Uh, It might happen to you less because you're a Pakeha girl, but whatever, Mm -hmm. it will happen. And um, it's how you deal with it that's going to be the big difference. And how you change it for the next kid that comes along or the next generation.
0: Um, And that's what I'm doing. And what about your own sons? So, (laughs) (laughs) does all your work also apply to how you're teaching them and raising them as well? Yeah, I think so. They
1: are both interested in technology. They would. There was probably no way absolute, like, that they wouldn't be. Um, My partner owns a small business being a managed services company. So he, um, it's like the IT help desk for companies that are too small to have an IT help desk. So they grew up surrounded by bits of electronics, old computers, you know, things like that. In fact, one of the funniest stories about that is that um, one of my sons came with me to uh, one of the work events that I was at with the Pam Ferguson Trust. And it was an unmaking event where we give the kids screwdrivers and dead technology and they are allowed to just take it apart just to check out what's inside. It's a big deal for a lot of kids who are always told not to touch that because they'll break it um so then you know he had so much fun he came back and he found a screwdriver and he undid a computer that was sitting on the floor in our lounge which was not a broken piece of tech (laughs) it was in fact a a very important piece of tech that was going out to a customer um so yeah luckily he had learned some things at the event and wasn't you know bashing at it or breaking anything but it's just that kind of thing where you give that curiosity to a child and they, um, they take it and they run with it. Um, which is why I'm not the proudest, like gushy mom that some people are. I just like, I believe that they can do their own thing and that, um, being proud of something that someone else does is a little bit weird, but I am proud of that story I told earlier about the, about the 3d to, you know, the 2d to 3d, because it's just it was actually mind blowing to me. Mm-hmm. Like I literally use that as an as an example every time I teach scratch. You need to teach us now. I'm like, you know, don't don't say you can't to these kids. Just show them what they can do and let them run with it. And that's the other thing that I teach adults, you know, elderly people who have been amazing kayako for years. Don't be scared to put your kids in front of something that you don't understand, um, as long as you understand what the safety parameters are then that's fine because that's your only job is you're keeping them safe while they are creative and learn yeah
0: yeah yeah. and I guess for um any parents who might be listening and they want their child to tap into that creativity and learn more about tech um and they feel like maybe their schools are not offering that to them where would you Mm -hmm. recommend them look because I know there's organizations like omg tech as well um that do programs
1: yeah. so, sorry the pamphlets and charitable trust is omg tech whether yeah that's just one of our brands um yeah so yes and no i mean there will be always examples like ourselves that do public events and that you can take your child along to so like the one that i said about um you know mommy and daughter events or parent and child or whatever it is right but also it's the law since 2018 in new zealand for your school to teach digital technologies now It's law right up to year 10. So if your child is 11, 12, or 13, they can choose to do it. They don't have to. Up to year 10, they have to have some part of their schooling as part of that. And they have what they call a graduate profile at year 10, which means that your child should come out of year 10 uh, having ticked off a bunch of things. A lot of those things are that fluency line that I talked about earlier. So um, understanding things like what is a file? how do you how do you put it in the right place so you can find it later all of that kind of stuff um, but then there's a lot of it is what is computational thinking what is algorithmic thinking those kind of slightly more complex concepts are important for us to live and navigate in this world if your child is interested is not interested in technology and you're listening to this despairing going everything in the world is about technology now mm-hmm. how do I what, you know, How how is this going to be helpful to me as a parent of a child that just loves to paint? Or, um, I don't know, is, is always buried in books and is probably going to be an author, right? For a certain amount of those people, having the fluency to be able to navigate their fields of choice is super important. No architect I know of, they all start off as just loving to draw, now needs to know how to do 3D CAD design. Like authors is a terrible one because they have to now be social media PR mavens on their own (laughs) and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Drawing people that love drawing. We have so many roles for people that work, you know, places like Weta Workshop and uh, Pixar, uh, but none of them are doing it with a pen and paper anymore. (laughs) And so it's just, how do you instill that love of technology into everyone and um, but the importance of technology that's what's really that's what is vital for people to understand yeah,
0: yeah. totally um when you were talking about the drawing thing i remembered because i grew up loving to draw it as well and i think if maybe i was born a little bit later <laughs> and i could like play with one of those what are those things that artists draw on now the digital the art r- a tablet yeah the tablets um yeah And just hearing stories from people who like create characters for games and movies. I'm like, that's so cool.
1: I mean, it's not, it's never too late. And especially if you've got like, you're wanting to pick up a new hobby or something. Um, A lot of those tablets, like I remember just a few years ago, they went in the thousands, right? And they've all come down in price. All of that kind of stuff comes down in price really quickly. I do a lot of drawing on my, so I have a Microsoft Surface Pro as my work laptop. And it's a tablet laptop like hybrid. So I can at times use my pen on it as a tablet. And then, yeah. And that, I mean, that is a slightly more expensive kit because it's a full laptop as well. But you can get ones that are way cheaper now just for drawing on. Um, I think Wacom does a whole bunch. It's just, you can learn to do that kind of stuff. Um, And it just depends on how far you want to take it and whether you want it to be a new job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: cool so you mentioned earlier about your background where you're from etc so i wanted to go a little bit into that because you did mention in our pre-chats about how you started learning tereo and then that sort of helped you or like led you towards i I guess exploring more about your own ethnic cultural background and identity um first of all what inspired you to want to learn tereo
1: yeah um so I guess one of the first things uh, like the the being inspired to learn today was kind of like it was just something that I always thought I should do from for as long as I can remember because I live here um and I think that is the Asian in me um like you know people go like when you walk around any country in Asia every person there speaks generally the language of whatever that country is plus three or four others (laughs) and it's normal there and in fact it's normal in Europe as well right I have a a Belgian friend who speaks French, Flemish, German you know and like for them again completely normal and that's something that was a little bit different here in Aotearoa where you come here and most people don't or they do up to you know form three Year, year nine French, and that's it, right? You can say like bonjour, <laughs> <laughs> and then that's kind of you go to like France and you can ask someone where the metro is, right? And so I was like, well, it's silly that I live here in this country and I don't speak the language of this country. And so I kind of thought, well, let's try that. But as anyone that's learned a language knows, it's like really hard when you're not surrounded by that language. Like, in a way, it would be much easier for me to do a couple of beginner French courses and go live in New Caledonia or France, where at any given time, walking down the street, you will hear people speaking that language, and then it will start to kind of sink in a lot more. Um, The tragedy is that Kereo Māori is in a revival stage still. And while there are so many super, super awesome, amazing people out there that do speak fluently, you know there's still this kind of you even if you knew them well you just revert back to English because it's easier right and so ah that's the biggest thing I've been struggling with I've done uh, you know three or four courses uh, mostly online and stuff and where I've had ample opportunity to kind of meet up with people and talk and um, there's the Kappa that happens in, in Auckland so shout out to the people that organize that where it's like you're meant to go and and then talk to people in a pub for like an hour in te reo Māori. and I've just always been well too scared to do that, like because I don't know enough to hold a conversation. <laughs> yeah, and that's like yeah, so that's been I guess my biggest challenge, but also this kind of like um, wanting to understand more. What I've really liked about learning more is that no language, and is this the same with French, Spanish, whatever? You don't just learn a language ever; you learn the con the context with which that language comes from, and so in Te Reo Māori, obviously that's Te Ao Māori, the world, the Māori worldview, and that um, that's what led me to kind of question that I had that internalised racism for myself, where I was pushing away the parts of me that I should have been celebrating, and so uh, I'm professionally known as Vivian um, that's not my legal name, but I'm in the process of making that my legal name right now. And it's because it's just easier, like telling people that book flights for me that that's not my name. And, you know, <laughs> but like, I mean, for a mundane administrative thing, I'm changing my name. Right. And I've always professionally been known as Vivian because it's a European name. And so many stories come out with like, people not you know being completely looked over if they don't have a European name and that's yeah and that like you know fighting that kind of internalized racism as well as like outward systemic racism in terms of that kind of stuff um yeah trying to understand what part of me I may need to reclaim what part of me I need to learn more about
0: Mm, and it sounds like you're still at the start of that journey at the moment
1: right at the beginning yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) um and really not knowing how to go ahead with it um i've i've done like cute little things like managed to find a little group of people on twitter that are all from malaysia (laughs) malaysian kiwis you know like that kind of stuff but not not excessively so. And my entire world revolves at the moment around some of my work colleagues, a mixture of uh, Maori people and Pakia people, um, and uh, my family. Um, so my partner's Fijian Indian. So I'm learning a tiny bit about their culture and then raising our kids in predominantly a Pakeha worldview um, because that's the only one we have access to.
0: With regards to your kids, then, so like with your Malaysian Chinese background and your husband's Fijian, Indian was it background yeah um how do you incorporate that into your kids lives
1: we are super super lucky that we have both of our parents so the kids grandparents and in fact up to a couple of years ago both the kids (laughs) great-grandparents living within a five-minute drive for 10-minute drive so they both have had access to their great-grandparents one passed away a couple of years ago the other one's still there My, my maternal grandmother's still there so my kids great-grandma um, and both the sets parents living here in Aotearoa and they spend a heck of a lot of time with them. We like to joke that we're part-time parents so uh, <laughs> lockdown was particularly hard for us because <laughs> you can't be a part-time parent in lockdown um, but you know uh, it meant that our kids get access to that slightly different world view all the time. They Neither of them have picked up significant amounts of language which obviously opens up a lot more of that um and part of that is definitely on us because we don't speak each other's language it's harder to instill that language like you know to, to pass on language when you don't speak the other person's language so I had a ex-colleague who's Dutch and you know her his partner's Fijian indigenous Fijian and they that their kids speak like three or four languages from both of them, because of that, because they all spoke each other's languages. So they'd made that effort well before the kids were born. And so then, it, you know, it was their reward. Yeah.
0: And so I guess embarking on this um, identity journey, what do you hope you'll discover along the way? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, actually. Like I said, I've
1: kind of just been starting to think about this kind of stuff and um, whether I feel it's important to me like i guess you could call it like a midlife crisis kind of <laughs> thing as well like um you know like what what would i like to be cuz if i was thinking really um i can't remember the word right now but like my kid is 14 now right so in probably 10ish maybe 15ish years um he might be having kids you know that seems completely feasible and so what kind like as a grandparent like talk about a midlife crisis like what what would what would I want to pass on because definitely in 15 years time as sad as it is for me to say this out loud some of our parents and and grandparents are probably not going to be there anymore and so we're losing that right we're Mm. losing that that link that we have now yeah and the kids aren't picking it up they're picking up bits of the culture Bits of the language, um, you know, the love of food, that kind of thing, which is all really nice, but not not enough for them to then pass that on to their kids, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, I think it is. I guess that fear of losing all of that, because like with like Malai traditions and like Chinese culture and stuff, there is such an emphasis on ancestors and connecting with your ancestors, and then then it's like how how can you do that if you don't know their stories? And you yeah. don't know where they've they've come from.
1: Yeah, and also I guess not just so much stories, but like um, like the context of why they chose to do what they chose to do at whatever time. Um, mm. That's yeah, that's I guess a big deal as well. And um, then that kind of both the choices to move here to make a new life in this country. And, you know, and that's the, like, I guess that's the point. When you hear some of the rhetoric out there, why don't you assimilate? I can't believe you've lived here 20 years and don't speak English. Uh, it's never te reo Maori, by the way. <laughs> um, and you're like, well, it's it's like where, at what point is it becoming a certain person, you know, and changing who you are? And at what point is it still honoring where you came from? in a way that makes sense to you yeah yeah and I guess that's all the kind of stuff I'm struggling with at the moment and have absolutely no answer or end goal to
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I think a lot of us are on that journey as well um sort of like trying to muddle through and figure things out thank you so much for your time today and for sharing everything that you do um love your work and yeah looking forward to seeing how you go in the future as well especially on your personal identity journey yeah um and
1: well yeah. I blog about that kind of stuff on my website so yeah you know I'll
0: include that link in the show notes awesome. as well um, and yeah go check Vivian out <laughs>
1: <laughs> you really don't
0: have to <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode and I hope you learned a great deal like I did. If you want to follow Vivian's work, you can visit her website vivianchandra.com. I've put the link in the show notes. Remember, if you enjoyed this conversation, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow along on Instagram. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast.